So yes, go ahead. Yeah, so the first, my first question is about, I already, last time we met, we already sort of discussed this, but um, one of the main things I was thinking of when uh, I knew that we could meet again is uh, I wanted to delve further in this notion of tran transnationality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, because uh, it seems to me that your experience is not only a Taiwanese experience, mm -hmm. first of all, you've, uh, you've Mm -hmm. to, you've worked for, uh, mm -hmm. I don't remember how many years, mm -hmm. in the Silicon Valley, right? I, I've worked with, yeah, the, the Valley. I still work with Apple and then the Oxford University Press. And so you yeah. sometimes go there, or you've already spent a long well, time there? Mm, since, Skype, just a since Skype appeared, yeah. that was 2007, 2008. So you don't need to go there? I don't need to go there anymore. Before Skype, I had to, to fly all around. Okay, yeah. okay. But I was not a long-term... Uh, stay there, right? Uh, yeah, I, I stayed in um, Valley for a few months, maybe five, seven, okay. and then a few months in Boston, and, and then also in Portland, in Seattle. But yeah, it's a few months, a few months. Yeah. Okay, but still, you've been uh -huh. remote from your country for yeah, yeah, yeah. long spans of time, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and to me, when I think of, you know. Um, Hackers, well, the term is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, sure. Yeah. But, uh, like you, um, mm -hmm. it's... I mean, in, especially in the negative sense, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you're going to hear of the Russian mm -hmm. hackers, yes, yes. Or the Chinese mm -hmm. hackers. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but apart from these, especially when we think of the more you know, civic-minded ones, mm -hmm. or the ones not so much interested in earning money mm -hmm. out of their activity and so on, there seems to be this really... Um, uh, global reach mm -hmm. and um, also global uh, perspective, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and especially um, a global inspiration, mm -hmm. transnational inspiration by you know um, values such as mm -hmm, the ones mm -hmm. we discussed, yes. you know, open uh, source, mm -hmm. yes. and, mm -hmm. uh, transparency, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you that was something you were reflecting upon, mm -hmm. and uh, and if you. Um, uh, if you feel that you're the transnational mm -hmm. citizen, mm -hmm. uh, since citizenship is very mm -hmm. much something you're, you're, um, you're actively working mm -hmm. on. Oui. Uh -huh. Yes. So, um, a few things, right? Uh, we just saw with our own eyes the Earth, mm -hmm. right? As a, a planet among the stars. Mm -hmm. and, and it. It's called the overview effect. Uh, many astronauts, they go to the space, they see us with their own eyes, and then uh, they feel that na nations or countries or borders that are just not visible from space. Right? From space, you see lights, you see uh, people's activities, you see um, the geography, you see the climate, you see the, the Arctic, uh, like, um, like the polar lights and so on, but not countries, right? So um, I think a lot of the effect of the hacker mentality is essentially seeing the, the Earth as, um, you know, topologically as connected spaces and, and not a, uh, a place. Uh, the difference between space and place is like um, a place assumes a uh, containing ship like if you are in Paris, then you are also in France. There's no way that you can in, be in Paris but not in France, yeah. right? Be, a, a place assumes a, a kind of 
uh, like hierarchical topology. Yeah. Right. But but if you think in terms of spaces, of then it's just whether this space can link to some other space. It's very hypertextual kind of mm-hmm. um, ability and. Uh, hackers, by definition, are, are people who make their own tools. And when we are hacking on the internet, we, we operate with the laws of um, physics, that is to say the speed of light. So uh, we are very aware of, for example, Taipei is seven hours ahead of Paris. right? But uh, for uh, country cities in the same time zone, um, there's really not much difference at all uh, in terms of speed of light, in terms of uh, sleeping cycle, in terms of human activity and so on. And so we tend to, to think uh, across the, um, the links that's basically saying everything, uh, everybody in the same sleeping cycle, normally people in nearby time zones are like a tribe. And then people in faraway time zones, there may be different tribes. We may have to uh, schedule time to meet with them, to work with them, and so on. And so that becomes a more natural kind of geography than the the nation country, which is defined largely by mountains and rivers, right? And but mountains and rivers has nothing to do with fiber optics. Fiber optics and satellites doesn't care about mountains and rivers. So, so I think that's the, the fundamental difference uh, in perspective of geography. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, um, a few uh, months ago, I was um, having my, student, my students read an article for our course, and uh, it made me think of, uh, of uh, this question. This article was about the, um, you know, the moment when there was the, the this one of the first internet strikes, mm. you know, when uh, Wikipedia mm. shut down and... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a SOPA. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, there was this uh, very interesting mm-hmm. uh, questioning in the, in the study uh, discussed in the article and that was, they were, uh, they were interested in the fact that it was not only American citizens mm-hmm. that um, responded to their survey and actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, were reflecting upon the the SOPA, mm-hmm. um, you know, the significance and so on. Obviously, there would be some ripple. If it was accepted mm-hmm. in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, yes. uh, as such, it would be rippled all over the world. But you know, it was not as it's supposed not to affect them as much if they were not American citizens, right? But um, but but uh, some respondents to the study, mm-hmm. you know, were very um, were feeling really strongly about mm-hmm. it and. Uh, and uh, it felt completely normal, right? Mm-hmm. And my, my students, when they read the article, they did not even, you know, they were not, they uh, did not even pay attention to this fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was thinking that, um, you know, thanks to the internet, uh, that, you know, it, it's really uh, obviously globalization has been mm-hmm. uh, here for, you know, mm-hmm. centuries and yeah. it's protocols, I don't know how mm-hmm. to call it, mm-hmm. but. But there's really something else mm-hmm. that's um, that's you know making the the, the fabric of all of our lives in the world you know mm-hmm. denser yes. thanks to the internet. And so since this is your activity mm-hmm. is, is so much ingrained mm-hmm. in the web, mm-hmm. um, I, you know I was uh, I was feeling uh, I was thinking again again about uh, about you know your commitment in the. Taiwanese, mm-hmm. um, you know, parliament occupation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and also, you know, what you said about how you were using some mm -hmm. of the codes, you know, from elsewhere, and also how what you did in Taiwan was used in Occupy mm -hmm. Central, and and so I was wondering if all the same there was not some kind of hierarchy of mm -hmm. you know identity and um, and, uh, and closeness mm -hmm. and and so on, and how you felt about that. Right. Um, so th there's a a few things. Um, well, SOPOW is actually not the first strike I participated. The EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has organized many blackouts, actually, uh, in the previous century even. Um, so, so it's actually a, a technique that we already uh, know how to use uh, from time to time. But SOPOW was particularly um, attractive because uh, first, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Many different parts of the, the world uh, is considering a very similar laws. And uh, especially if U.S. becomes an example, then uh, the other governments will be like, there, there won't be much resistance in doing whatever the U.S. did. You, you can see that in, for example, the copyright extensions, right? Uh, and, and so on, uh, where U.S. did something not really rational, and the, but the other governments kind of just followed. Yeah. And so Taiwan at that time was debating a very similar kind of uh, like SOPA-like law. And that's uh, essentially a, a DNS level uh, censorship that says if there's any foreign uh, website that obviously is a plagiarizing uh, domestic content copyrighted data from Taiwan, then uh, the um, theory of uh, uh, intellectual property uh, according to this proposed bill, will have the the right to terminate the DNS resolution, meaning people cannot connect mm -hmm. to the infringing website. Their main target was this EYNY.com, which is a large, it's like the Pirate Bay, uh, like you can view all the movies uh, there. So it's obvious what this bill is for, right? Um, but then um, at that time, uh, the Moet Dictionary, the uh, multi-language dictionary that I maintain with the GovZero folks, which is a fork, uh, a copy, but with a better interface with the official Ministry of Education dictionary mm -hmm. in Taiwan. We did that in a civil disobedient way, right? We downloaded everything and we set up a new site. It will um, take three years before, two, two and a half years before the ministry agreed to open data and thereby like vindicating whatever we're doing and says, okay, from now on, it is actually free. Um, Right. But for, for a matter of one or two years, uh, we claim that we're fair use, but we could still be sued uh, under the copyright law. And because the Moedict machine is hosted in Tokyo, uh, in Linode, and I'm the administrator, um, it is, by definition, uh, a wholesale copy that is infringing, uh, questionably, but could be said infringing, uh, and in a, a uh, extraterritorial host. Yeah. So it satisfies all the checklists from that law. So I just took the dictionary down. And I mean, today there's seven million visits per month to that dictionary. Uh, two years ago there wasn't that many, but it's still a very high number. Uh, so when I took it black, I replaced it with a page that says, if this bill has passed, the dictionary you're viewing, you will not be able to view it. And so, uh, and the um, constitution guarantees um, 
like the right of communication regardless of content between any people. So this bill is unconstitutional. And then uh, I have a call to action button that people can click and it will locate their nearest legislator and also the Bureau of Intellectual Property. It was the phone number and everything. And so they can call them or, or, or print a petition and mail them. And yeah, so, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a strike in, in the very traditional sense. Yeah, and so uh, it actually worked. So um, yeah, and not, not just me, I mean, the Taiwan Wikipedia and many other um, like Mozilla and other uh, parties also joined. So within a, a week, uh, the, the government withdraws um, the bill. And that's also because the um, anti-SOPA people in the US was doing very much the same thing. So it's, as you said, there is a solidarity. That, that means um, we understand that um, all the interdependent uh, jurisdictions, they kind of just copy each other. So when there is a, a strong uh, former case of uh, how to establish the government's reaction with the internet, the governments close to it will follow very quickly, very rapidly. And so um, it's, I mean, it's everybody's business. That, that's what I'm trying to say. So yeah, I think the, the internet um, has at every point uh, in time a um, possibility of what we call balkanizing. That is to say, each uh, sovereign state uh, refused to talk with the uh, operators and programmers and hackers and insist on being the countries intranet. And the, the reason why this haven't happened was that for all the sovereign nations, at least the more democratic ones, the economic values uh, like is far higher than if they kept it just to themselves. But every year they are reevaluating re that equation. So I think that that fact is what uh, makes all the hackers and internet uh, users uh, across the world feel as if like they're uh, a tribe uh, against all the nations in the world and trying to. Um, it, it's actually a lot like what we um, now see in the Aborigine movement in, in Taiwan, uh, where the, the Aborigine people claim that um, they, they should be able to make their own laws, and they have a very special, not really foreign, but uh, a special relationship with the, the Taiwanese administration. So they're not just fighting for you know, the right for keeping their names or keeping their land and so on, but, but just a, a different style of life or their own style of life. And then uh, they think this lifestyle is something that's worth um, explaining, communicating, and preserving, and so on. And as I, I think in, in many cases, uh, the internet users were like a, a tribe. It's of, of course not aborigine, but uh, it's, it's similar in, in the idea that it could interface with many different uh, sovereign nations at once. Yeah, but at the same time, since the US was really mm -hmm. the avant-garde, right, mm -hmm. there's, in a way, it feels to me that when you're really active on the internet, mm -hmm. you're bound to feel closer to the U.S. You see what I mean? You're using, I mean, it's, you're using um, uh, so much uh, tools, so many tools, so much material that was uh, mm. designed by Californians. But, you see what but, I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah but Californians. <laughs> not, it's not representative of the whole American population. Yeah, they, they, you see what I mean? Uh, yeah, yes. 
very strong. Mm. It's a form of soft power. But it is. It is. Um, so there, there are several things, right? Um, the early people, the pioneers, as you said, of the internet society, they were like in in Massachusetts or mm -hmm. in Berkeley or in. They they are hardly um, patriots. <laughs> they are hippies, really. Yes. So so um, yeah. But even though yeah. they're still yeah, know, they're still yeah, like they use English. That's true. Mm -hmm. And then uh, English with a lot of like loan words from. Um, Hebrew and from Chinese. That's the two like main populists that work with the uh, the internet pioneers. So in the early um, what we call hackers dictionary, mm -hmm. uh, we see a lot of loan words uh, from those two cultures. But as you said, the American English is the main culture, and and every other culture kind of just becomes a part of it. Um, but on the other hand, um, I, I would say that internet was designed. Um, as you probably know, uh, by the Department of Defense in the U.S., as a way for people to communicate after a you know nuclear apocalypse, right? So, so when the hierarchies are destroyed, it was designed um, to survive anarchy, in so to speak. It was one of its original ghosts. So, I think it was really hard coded, like laws, not um, jurisdiction laws, physical laws, um, into the internet that there must not be a central control. There must not be a, uh, a, a top-down kind of hierarchy, because if they want that architecture, they already have AT&T, they already have you know, the, the big telecoms. Um, and the internet was designed as an experiment that will survive when all these has uh, failed after a nuclear war. So um, I think it is, um, there is a native culture to the internet, which is, just, as I just said, and it is uh, a slice of the uh, U.S. avant-garde culture, but it is uh, kind of antisocial at this time, and it's now it's kind of mainstream, but it's still not uh, conformist, as we would say. It's very much still a college kind of culture in, in the U.S., and that's very specific to a few colleges in the um, two sides of the U.S. Yeah. I was thinking about this because I was also thinking about you know I, I don't I don't know Thailand very well mm -hmm. but from what I or the sort of the insight that mm -hmm. I have is that yes. the Taiwanese um, you know they have this uh, sort of very you know, complicated com relationship with China. Well, constitutionally, China is part of Taiwan. It's very easy to explain. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, now this sort of fear, you uh -huh. know, that China is getting closer and closer. It's okay. Even though it was already <laughs> <laughs> and And something that I mm -hmm. actually um, uh, had a few insights um, of recently, I don't know if it's mm -hmm. right or not, but that in a way the, the Taiwanese, they cherish some of their relationship with Japan. Mm -hmm, yes. In opposition, maybe, maybe because they're so much in opposition. And with the Dutch, China, actually, before Japan. And, and, and with the pirates, that was... That was uh, do they, yeah. right? Because yeah, I they remember do. talking uh. with this um, Taiwanese uh, you know, uh -huh. sociologist that you yeah. met last time, and she told me that she, she went back to Taiwan last summer and mm -hmm. she was really surprised when she was visiting a few museums with mm -hmm. a French friend that mm -hmm. she had brought along that in the historical accounts and um, 
it really seemed to be this mm -hmm. uh, sort of um, positive bias. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, when when uh, discussing Japanese mm -hmm. uh, influence on yes. the island, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, she didn't mention the, the Dutch the or the pirates, but okay, uh, but but yeah, the, the pirates were the pirate kings. They were uh, two were also pretty idolized. Mm. Yeah, very positive. And so I'm wondering if this has some impact on, uh, on uh, activities of the activities of uh, hackers because mm -hmm. I'm thinking you know language is very important it is so obviously mm -hmm. this is making um, Chinese mainlanders and mm -hmm. I don't know how to call them and, and no, China is just fine yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm you know it's making you closer mm -hmm. and you're using some of the same tools but mm -hmm. obviously not all yeah. of them yeah. And uh, but at the same time, uh, language is certainly not enough, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to to make um, uh, the to make Canada part of the <laughs> U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know how to call this, but because I, you know, one main question that I'm wondering about is, um, you know, are there people that mm -hmm. are have you know similar experiences as you mm -hmm. and that are doing similar things in China. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, all the things that I can get about Chinese hackers are, you know, mm -hmm. more, you know, those working uh, for the government or mm -hmm. paid by the government. Well, yeah, the army hackers. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're famous, yeah. But uh, obviously, mm -hmm. they're, they're also, I'm mm -hmm. sure, you know, the civil less government-affiliated yes. mm -hmm. uh, ones. And then mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if, I mean, even though there might be... Uh, uh, you know, more detached from the mm -hmm. government. I'm wondering if there's this feeling of community mm -hmm. between, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Taiwanese hackers, hackers and, and this Chinese kind of hackers, hackers in yeah, China. Yeah. Or if actually mm -hmm. language is not enough to when language well, and other Well, I, I mean, China, China is, is very interesting from the internet perspective because it is an intranet. And um, it is um, like the, the exporter of the Great Firewall. Uh, they have a saying in China now that they, um, if if you buy high-speed rails from us, we will give you a firewall for free. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, so they're, they're really selling that. I mean, um, because the, the hardware, of course, like Cisco and, and other things, mm. it, they're commodity. But the, the really hard thing is the, uh, the the soft system, you know, the sensors, how to tune the parameters, when to uh, dial up the censorship, when to dial down, what keywords to ban, uh, how to make examples out of people. You know, these are very subtle political, um, and they have used machine learning, they have used artificial intelligence, they have used cutting-edge technology. And decentralization, right? Yes, and decentralization and self-censorship. Part of censorship in China. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. And they're, they're yeah, also they trying to, to introduce a social credit kind of karma system called the Sesame Credit uh, so that people who behave better will be rated by their peers as more trustworthy and, and so on. A, a, quantified, um, uh, a quantified loyalty, so to speak. So, so there's, I mean, from, from an uh, interaction designer, Perspective. This is very interesting. It's a. <laughs> it's never happened before. I mean, the the Stasi <laughs> did a, a lot of pioneering work on that, but they did not have the same set of 
computerized tools. <laughs> yes, no, they they just don't have the tools. Yeah. So they had to use wetware, and and the, the wetware that is to say human brain uh, has a lot of uh, deficiencies in tracking so much variables. And China um, actually is a, a early pioneer <laughs> using computerized uh, censorship, which doesn't have the same bias as human censorships do, and it also let them manage like more people with fewer people. So I mean, from a computational perspective, it's very interesting research, but from a sociology perspective, this is very horrible. <laughs> and uh, um, so, so people in China who work on what they call scientific internet using, 科学上网, Right, is uh, developing tools to to uh, go through the great firewall, to dial to the outside VPN, or to uh, set up like a free. Um, it's called scientific. Yeah, it's 科学上网. Okay. Yeah, scientific networking. Scientific. All this helping circumventing the censorship. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I have no idea what's called this way. Yeah, it's called 科学上网. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and and why they call that was that because the the wall changed the algorithm all the time. They have to experiment again and again and have hypothesis of the model of the current settings of the wall and then and so on. So they, they feel like scientists, researchers uh, working with some natural, actually supernatural phenomena and then uh, develop constantly ways around it. So, I mean, um, for, for us in Taiwan, people who develop uh, those Koshi Shangwan tools our natural affinities. I mean, uh, because without those tools, uh, our posts on most of the Taiwan social media is invisible to people in, in China. So anybody who developed tools to enable communication is naturally an ally. Um, so that's just responding to your question with, with a larger cultural context. Okay. And so, uh, um, but can I ask you a technical question? Sure, yes, um, of course. It's so yeah. complex to me. Yeah. How does VPN work? work. OK, right. Um, so the way... You don't have to give me all the details. No, no, sure no, it's just fine. Everything. No, you, you will actually understand. It, it's very easy. Um, so um, all the censorship laws actually uh, can be thought in analogy in the postal system. Um, SOPA works by looking at the um, recipient field of your outgoing postcards. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you're sending to some criminal's address, it just blocks the, the mail, so the criminal doesn't even receive your email. That's the that's SOPA law. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and encrypted communication, HTTPS, uh, is like an envelope that only uh, your recipient can, can open. Mm -hmm. But still, you have to write the address on the plain text. Mm -hmm. It's just the content that is encrypted. right? So again, the sensors in the postal office can just look at the, the recipient's address and still block it. The only thing they cannot do now is they cannot look at your mail and censor the based on the content. right? So um, the Great Firewall is like a postal office that is not blacklist like SOPA, it's whitelist. Like only these recipients are good citizens. Mm. And then uh, you can, just a second, and you can only send mail to those good people. And the other people are just bad people. And so uh, it doesn't even care what the address is, it just blocks them outright. So VPN basically is like uh, a uh, friend 
that is in one of the good addresses that first promise not to look at your mail, which is usually an envelope within an envelope, and second, they agree to forward your after opening the first set of envelope, the the second envelope to to your uh, the people you are actually trying to contact, and when they reply. They seal it again with an additional envelope and send it back. So to the postal office, you're just exchanging with one friend, but you're actually talking to tens of thousands of people. It's just one person forwarding it for you. That's how it works. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> and so, um, from what I gather, mm -hmm. the the government. Well, has been uh, more and more, I mean, stricter and stricter in its, uh, the Chinese government. No, it, 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 it's got, it, it got better and better with their capability. Yeah. And then in some days, like during their, like during the uh, 4th of June, they dialed the setting yeah. to all the way to the highest. Okay. And in the normal days, they dial it down. Mm. So I, I wouldn't say it gets stricter and stricter. They're getting better and better with their technology. But the so dial, they're showing. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is that they're better and better, mm -hmm. and they are quite tolerant mm -hmm. of the Indian usage. In, in normal days. In normal days. Mm -hmm. but, and, but when they, when they need to, or mm -hmm. when they want to show yeah, up mm -hmm. their capabilities, then yes. they, they show the yes. whole range of what they can do. Exactly. And they also use the, the wall for offensive capability. For example, because they can forge the returning email of the returning packet from any outside source. So the wall can also be used as what they call a great cannon. Um, the great cannon is uh, basically saying all the mails, regardless of where you're sending to, now all goes to GitHub, to a single recipient. Mm. So then that mailbox becomes flooded and it, it goes out of service. Mm -hmm. So it, can, it, it had been used offensively uh, okay. before. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're showing off basically their capability of doing this. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, okay, because uh, I was wondering about, because I heard some people saying that mm -hmm. uh, um, now they had to change their VPNs mm -hmm. uh, more often than they used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. And yeah. so it's, it's because of this, because the government's liberties are... Yeah, yes, because what, they, what they, they are now doing is that they, they don't even have to look at the, the recipient address anymore. They look at the pattern. Like if you send a lot of mails in the rapid succession without getting any uh, reply, mm. then of course you're actually talking to many people. Mm. Right? So they trained uh, the machine learning algorithms to spot this kind of suspicious behavior and then do a behavior profile-based blocking. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's getting very sophisticated now. So it's getting harder and harder to send newsletters and things like that? Exactly, exactly. yes. Um, all right, and so um, let's go back to what you were saying about these, um, you know, Chinese hackers mm -hmm. yes. um, working on the yes. Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> So, how do you? I mean, have you mm -hmm. physically met one? I think I have. Yes. Mm -hmm. And. Um, I mean, how do you communicate? Are there platforms in Chinese where, you know, yeah, hackers yes, meet? Yes. Or is it just a normal, 
you know, global platforms where you just tend to meet just well, using I mean, Chinese language. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if they um, so their tools are actually on GitHub. It's on a a common That's platform. Really the universal platform. Yeah, it is a universal platform at the moment. Yes, and then uh, they also publish uh, their their papers and so on on, you know, the the the, the usual suspects. You can look at uh, GitHub. There's uh, discussions about in in uh, even Archive, the the pre preprint server, and there's IRC. There's um, they, basically. When when they got around the the Great Firewall, they're they're just a normal netizen, so they, they go where netizens go, and so so yeah, I I don't think it, it's more it's more like if you're within a firewall and you don't have a way to uh, get across it at that moment, then you have to find what we call a dark net or a sneaker net or there's many names uh, that will do a um, what we call a um, sideband. Like it, it will get you the tools that in the first place necessary to to get around the the firewall at the moment, and I think there's a lot of technologies for that from within the intranet, but I'm not familiar with that because I haven't set my foot on on uh, China for the past ten years or so. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. And um, so um, since you have this knowledge of, of these people. Um, uh, would you say that they're they're autodidacts like you, or are they more you know, have this uh, different sort of profile? Uh, right. Um, I, I think what I'm what I'm seeing mostly are just that they're they're curious people. Um, uh, whether curious people end up being autodidacts is largely depending on the quality of schools in their vicinity. If there are no um, tolerant, good quality schools, then they become dropouts. But on the other hand, if they get into one of the more uh, liberal colleges, or if they uh, get uh, education from abroad, or so on, then, then they, they could stay in the school system. Some of them are even researchers, um, uh, and they don't have to work in China anymore. Usually, they, they find opportunities, and they can work abroad, and then help the, the culture someone people from a safer place. Yeah, from a safer place. There's a lot of people doing that, too. Yeah. Okay. Don't you think it also depends on the relationship with their parents? And, yeah. um, I think the, there's one thing that, that China and Taiwan has in common, uh, is that they, uh, all the parents place a very high priority on education. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that if the, if, it, it's very rare to meet a hacker who does not come from a tradition that at least values some education. Um, but. Yeah, I think it's a very personal case-by-case case, uh, thing, whether that turns to be, you know... I, I think hacking is, is very interesting because um, it's both a social activism, but it's when we strike, uh, we're not just doing unproductive blockage, we're actually supplying each other tools. So, so it's fundamentally non-alienating um, kind of work, but it also pays well. So, so it, it, it's very paradoxical even. Marx haven't seen <laughs> that, that there, there's this kind of that relationship. So it's very easy for a hacker to just feed themselves or to present a socially acceptable front to their family or to their parents. They, they don't have to do much. 
they, they could look like a successful entrepreneur or researcher mm-hmm. or anything. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's maybe because I have this old dated image of you know this mm-hmm. the American teenager mm-hmm. buried in his room, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and mm-hmm. on his computer all mm-hmm. night, and right. it feels mm-hmm. more difficult to do that in the Chinese family. No, that, I mean that's the normal way. To my mind, you have less space, you uh-huh. know, less privacy. Yeah, you don't have <laughs> much, I mean? not much privacy. That's 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 for sure. Uh, but on the other hand. Um, you, you don't need much privacy to, to do hacking, you just need a laptop, right? So it's one of the, it's like mathematician, right? If you have a room for a chalkboard, you're, you're good, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say, um, because it's, it's, it could, from the outside, usually people cannot tell whether you're working on Kozhuishanang or you're working on any other programs. Yeah, so, so I think that's not a, a big problem. Okay. Um, um, I I want to move uh, and encountered the work of a, a scholar. Mm-hmm. I think she's American. Not sure, actually. but she 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 studied in the US. I brought a copy of one of her articles. And. Um, it's really interesting. Have you heard of her? Sylvia Nathan? Mm-hmm. So she's working on it. Oh, this is the Shenzhen. Uh, yeah. Shenzhen mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so she's written many articles, but in co-authored articles also with the, the people, especially from, uh, it's from uh, Shanghai also. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Shanghai, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so David Lee and uh, the other ones. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I find the idea of, uh, you know, saying that actually, um, you know, this sharing and so on is already in Chinese culture. It is, it is. You know, uh, I think this is really interesting. And, uh, and also, especially this hacking thing of, you know, recycling things, not letting them go to waste. And, yes, yes, like and saving each other's time and so on. Yeah, and is it something that you already have thought of? Uh, is it something obvious for Chinese who are hackers? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, see, um, the Chinese had papers copying um, even movable type like way before the, the West. I think a thousand years or something. So, so, so we, um, the Chinese culture had a lot of time to think about copying. Uh, about culture transmission, about pamphlets, about the power of letters, and and so on. Uh, but on the other hand, in, in Europe, there's just not so much time, just a few centuries, between having paper and having Gutenberg, and and then uh, and then the Industrial Revolution. There, there's just not much time uh, between the these few events, right? So. Um, I think um, the Chinese culture largely sees um, copying as something that's natural and just like the fashion industry or like the software industry before the US ruled that uh, software programs could be patented 
and now they, they're reversing it in 2014. Now it cannot be patented anymore uh, if it's pure software. But, but I mean, for a few decades, it could be patented. Yeah, but, but it's very peculiar because that's a... Um, um, that's a movable type uh, era, like Benjamin Franklin uh, type of law uh, applied to digital copies and then to abstractions that is software. And but in in China, uh, the movable type happened way after paper, and then people like hand copied or brush script copied or using wooden uh, types copied. Uh, yeah, the brush script copied yeah. is you mean on the stones? Mm. Like yes, 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 the yes, yes. Steel yes, yes. There's a whole art of taking uh, brush scripts on paper and turn them into stone, and then you can use it as a seal to study uh, each other's calligraphic, right? So then you can just get the black one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 so when when a lar when a famous calligrapher uh, makes a new work. Uh, it makes the paper price soar because everybody wants a copy. <laughs> it's called Luoyang Zhi Gui. It means that it, it, the, all the papers in Luoyang were in short supply, so it became very expensive because everybody wants a copy of the calligrapher's work. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an idiom in, in Chinese. Okay, I didn't yeah. know this. <laughs> right. So what, what, what I'm saying is, I mean, um, and the, the Arabs also got access to paper relatively early on, but in, in the US or in Europe, even in the old Europe, there's no time for calligraphy to, to, to develop because then the movable type has already uh, surpassed calligraphy. Right? But so when you have a culture of paper and calligraphy and stone and seal making and so on, there's this just time tested. Uh, different models of copyrights protection, intellectual property protection, uh, authentic authenticity in art, uh, and uh, the kind of imitation and so on. And people largely settled on the social consensus that there there is nothing wrong with uh, with copying uh, a, a artwork or copying something. Shanghai is is not inherently criminal because we've been doing that for. Thousands of years, and then um, it also visibly fosters creativity. So uh, the movable type era in Europe kind of copyright is an alien kind of concept that we had to work very hard to to uh, accommodate. And yeah, that's just a historical curiosity. Yeah, left its heart when you speak in this. I mean, uh, are you, um, I don't, I don't know this. Mm -hmm. Is intellectual property in Taiwan, uh, um, you know, something completely imported and, and difficult to adapt to, like in China? Taiwan. It, yeah. Taiwan was not part of WIPO even. It was not part of the World Internet, uh, like World Intellectual Property Organization, because it's not a UN uh, member and therefore not a WIPO member. So yeah, for the, for the longest time. Um, when I was a child, uh, that was in the 80s, um, there's just no copyright law whatsoever. Uh, people just uh, printed uh, translations without attribution of uh, all the classics and uh, also copied translators because the, the China has state sponsors translators of all the classics, of the Western classics. So Taiwan just reprinted it without paying anything. And then. If you're yeah. in a. I mean, in, in China, 
when yeah. I want to book yeah. copy, I just uh, yeah. give it in a, so a store on yeah, yeah. campus and yeah. they put it, they even um, yeah, yeah. do a cover, yeah, nice exactly. cover. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And seal it so it actually yeah. looks so better than that? the original. Can you do that easily? Oh, so after WTO, of course, we cannot anymore because okay. WTO now has Taiwan as a member, right? But before WTO, I mean, when I was a child, people do that all the time. You know, China entered the WTO 15 years ago, and you can still do it. There. No, but I mean, they promised to to enforce a lot of things, but they don't actually go through with it, right? They they also agreed for uh, for Taobao. the implementation is stricter. It is because we're after all a democracy. <laughs> if they don't implement it, uh, people will vote them out. So, <laughs> right. So so yeah, I mean, uh, intellectual properties for Taiwan is um, very interesting because uh, there's just a few years of, you know, enforcing the WTO, but then after that few years, Creative Commons and open source again wins, right? We, we get theorists from the US saying, okay, maybe software patent is a bad idea. So, so we still haven't got accustomed to it, and then it got, you know, more free again. And um, I was wondering also about this because uh, there's this, you know, the case of Aaron Schwartz. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as well, especially since I'm always, you know, mm -hmm. taking so long to uh, have access to research papers and so mm -hmm. on. I, you know, I feel all the more outraged, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. he was um, threatened the way he was threatened, mm -hmm. you know, to, to yes. spend his whole life on, mm -hmm. in prison and so on. And, I was, um, in a way, I feel that there is also this cultural approach to that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as a French person, you mm -hmm. know, I maybe I understand him, you know, more easily than uh, you know, a Canadian mm -hmm. or American-based uh, mm -hmm. person, even of my generation, mm -hmm. would do. And so, I'm wondering about, mm -hmm. you know, obviously in China, <laughs> yeah, I think they feel the same way as I do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, what yes. about Taiwan then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we all were very touched by, by Aaron's uh, tragedy. And, um, did you feel that what he was doing had some... I think he's doing... I mean, I mean, a, I mean it, a, a, it's I mean, obviously, obviously civil disobedience. Know, but yeah, but, but I mean, when the Aaron's film, uh, The Internet's Own Boy, uh, aired in, in Taiwan just for, for normal people, not hackers. Yeah. They, they all sympathized very much with, with Aaron and I think free access to knowledge is one of the, the more higher, higher cultural values than, uh, for example, journalistic freedom. But Taiwan doesn't have so much time to live with journalistic freedom because it's only lifted uh, with the martial law, right, uh, in, in like 92, 93. So, so there's not much time, uh, it's only 30 years at most, uh, 20 years even. Yeah, it's only 20 years. Um, it's 30 years before uh, people first called for uh, press, freedom mm -hmm. of the press, and then 20 years before it actually become uh, entirely free. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so we don't have that much uh, time to to live with freedom of press, which means that people like Julian Assange, uh, who who get a lot of support from, from Australia and from some European people, he, he doesn't get as much support from the Taiwanese people because the value he represents, the absolute freedom of the press, yeah, doesn't so exist so 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 long in Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah, and also the the feeling of uh, 
also that there are you know some priorities mm -hmm. over yeah yeah over the the freedom of press yeah. yes yeah. Uh -huh. okay okay um, this is um, interesting yeah so also that's something that interesting here with this notion of going back to hacking mm -hmm. as you also also mentioned last time it's not a you know not uh, bound to be um, uh, connected with the internet mm -hmm. and digital virtual mm -hmm. things right, right. but also just in a sort of spirit a way yeah. of uh, a way to making new tools to adapt to new situations exactly yes. as you were saying um, mm -hmm. You were referring to the laziness, mm -hmm. you know, yes. that is, uh, yes. and um, so um, I was. Um, so obviously, this this kind of article to you is just the common sense. It is some common sense. Yes. Right. Have um, are, is it bears though some sort of literature on this, mm -hmm. or some kind of uh, I don't know. Not even, more than literature, some sort of uh, pamphlets and, and so on mm -hmm. about this this notion that um, I don't know how to say this, but this since this 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 uh, this vision that everything comes from the U.S. Mm -hmm. right, obviously there are, there are global participants mm -hmm. to the World Wide Web and so on, but there's mm -hmm. there there are the precursors yeah. and and and. From uh, from uh, the Chinese world, mm -hmm. Chinese speaking world, there's mm -hmm. this this other idea saying we've been doing this, you yeah. know, this open yes. source and yes. uh, and, and mm -hmm. so on, and this hacking spirit yes. has been is ingrained in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so, are there some sort of um, sophisticated articulation of this mm -hmm. claim? Yes, to counterbalance the American. Sort of well, well, yeah, but but this is this is getting interesting. Uh, I think what are their goals? Hacking, mm -hmm. hacking the world itself is a, a repurposed word, right? Uh, it started in seventeenth century. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to mean people who hack trees to make their own furniture, to make their own axes, to basically woodworkers who who make their own tools mm -hmm. and, and their own house and, and so on. So so hackers, mm -hmm. right? And so um, so in, in that sense, um, it's for me, at least, it's, it's describing a very particular relationship of human beings with their tools, right? Uh, woodworkers eventually identify uh, with the way they make the tools, and the tools they make make more woodworking possible, because much of the woodworking is using wood as the tools, you know, mm -hmm. the stool and the, the measure and the, everything is made of wood. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, and so this kind of relationship I think is not peculiar to the internet. The peculiar thing about the internet is that it makes copying uh, the marginal cost zero. That's the only difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, whereas before, when I have to share an idea, I have to first make sure that you have the same set of tools. Now I just copy it to you with no cost uh, whatsoever. So um, I think it's wise to, to separate the, the idea of hacking, which is <coughs> a um, self-empowering, community-empowering relationship between a toolsmith and their tools versus the internet, which is a way for people to connect and make copies of information, to disseminate information from each other. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that, of course, internet is not uh, native to the Chinese culture. 
uh, well, it's not native to any culture, but yeah, it's especially not native to a Chinese-speaking culture. But uh, hacking has been part of uh, like Chinese culture for for a very long time because it's a um, just a way for a toolsmiths to to talk to to each other. And if you want philosophy, I mean, uh, you can get it from the pre Qin philosophy. Even I think a lot of people will talk about the more Moism. Uh, which was <coughs> at one time the only rival school of thought to Confucianism. And, and Moism is a lot like hackers. Um, they're sharing a pooling of resources. There's a uh, pacifism kind of about it, but they intervene with the wars between the states by making better defense tools and, and so on. So, so there's a lot of um, mythology around Moism uh, and that's a, a fruitful, I think, way of exploring how it reoccurs uh, in Chinese history. Yeah. And is there some kind of, uh, I don't know how to say it, the nationalistic mm -hmm. claims, you know, made by Chinese China? hackers or, or Taiwanese hackers, you know, because here mm -hmm. yeah, at some point she's, she's yeah. quoting uh, mm -hmm. one of the guys in, in that way that's you know, that started this, um, this uh, hack space. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe I have it here. Uh, where, you know, he says very proudly that, you know, there's this. Um, yeah, Zhongguo <laughs> Zhizao, right? Yeah, made, made in China. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I can't find it here, but you know that was this interesting quote. And um, so I'm wondering if you know this this um, if this is really widespread. Or, I think it, it's yeah. This I is, think it's pretty pretty customary for for a um, a maker to to sign uh, their their name, their identity, their country, or whatever, right? Uh, even this thing says "Design California," so <laughs> it's it's a very assembled in China, <laughs> but but made in China, yes. <laughs> assembled in China, yes. Very important, just assembled in China. But yeah, yeah but I mean, I, I think it's it's kind of normal. Uh, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it yeah. because uh, this doesn't mean, for example, the Californian government has anything to do with this, yeah. right? It, it's more of a just a, a identity, I guess. But I mean, since there's this very widespread mm -hmm. discourse on the lack of creativity in China mm -hmm. and the fact that... Are they aware? <laughs> I'm not aware of I mean, <laughs> I mean, if, from uh -huh. a French perspective, uh -huh. you know, when I meet French colleagues yes. and they, they're going to tell me about their Chinese students, mm -hmm. or then I meet um, French businessmen mm -hmm. and so on talking about... Um, uh, some of their employees coming from China, mm -hmm. or you know, mm -hmm. there's this very, very widespread discourse on the, their lack of, uh, you know, uh, creativity, oh, originality, originality yes. spontaneity, uh -huh. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so on, right? And this is something that is um, digested by mm -hmm. the Chinese students themselves, mm -hmm. by you know, uh, and complaining about their education system and so on. Yeah, they they call it Yu, like examination oriented education. Yeah. Yeah, and they could be very so the the I think I initially took a, a double take because um, creativity um, doesn't really imply originality. You can be a very good, even creative 
adapter mm-hmm. or, or a imitator who, who and so on, right? Uh, but but yeah, I think that's that's something that Taiwan also has struggled uh, in the sixties and seventies when the uh, examination um, ruled the the education system and when the university admittance rate was single digits. So it's very difficult to get into a university, and uh, it's like in the smaller towns or villages, more rural areas, um, it's considered a, a, a top news if one of their child uh, gets to university because it was so monopolized by higher class yeah. um, people. Actually, we talked about that the last time. Yeah, uh, you, you share, when you share your own story and my father shared his, right? So in my father's uh, generation, that was very much a... Very elitist. Yeah, it's very elitist and uh, very... People spent a lot of time and a lot of energy just to take a higher score on the examinations, which leads, of course, to not so much free time. And when you don't have that much free time, of course, there's no spontaneity, originality. This is a natural consequence. But, um, but yeah, but when, when the martial law was lifted in the 90s, Taiwan decided uh, as a national uh, policy that everybody who wants to get to university now gets to have a university degree. So now um, there's virtually no limit. Uh, you you can't get a university regardless of how how much score you get in high school. Yeah. yeah so it's it's. There were people who missed the old times when a university degree still means something. But <laughs> but but to me, I mean, this this is the way it should be. People who want to get education get education regardless of how many spare time they they have, right? So uh, and and afterwards, people who grew up after the nineties, which means people at my age or younger than me, uh, they could be autodidacts. That's still legal now uh, in in Taiwan, and they could just take part AP uh, placements, advanced placement courses, and part community college, and so on. It's very flexible, and so we see this generation and the next and the next. Um, getting very creative and spontaneous and very flexible in a lot of what we call soft powers. But China has not yet uh, decided in the same way as Taiwan, mm. has decided in the early 90s. And in the 60s and 70s in Taiwan, did you, mm. I mean, did Taiwan have the same, um, I know you're too young. And no, it's okay, so but, but it, I remember, yeah, you the know, same cream schools. I was and, born in 81, yeah. and I remember when mm. I was very young that when you saw Made in Taiwan, it, mm. it sort of meant it was, you know, mm. not good quality. Yeah, yeah. So I guess in a way, you know, um, yeah, this is directly transferred. Used to be, yes, right? yes. And so does it mean that Taiwan also had this reputation of having... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and also was suffering in, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, self-confidence, in terms mm-hmm. of creativity, and yeah. not being able to innovate. Exactly, exactly. The, the pirate nation, it was called. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, and a lot of the the made in China factories were in fact either set up by by Taiwan entrepreneurs or Hong Kong entrepreneurs. There, these were two main sources, right? So, uh, and especially in in. Uh, machine manufacturing, I think a large majority was Taiwan entrepreneurs uh, transferring their, their technologies to, to China. So, so yeah, I think a lot of cultures and a lot of like ways uh, people treat each other like were done by uh, entrepreneurs older than my father, who was uh, brought under the martial law and uh, a, a very 
elitist kind of examination-based education, which is exactly what China had at that time. So they had no problem of uh, like the uh, Guo Taiming uh, uh, from Foxconn is a very good example because he he speaks like a in martial law era uh, commander, right? And um, uh, basically organized the the, yeah, organized a factory exactly as one would run a martial law era um, place, right? And um, um, yeah, one um, one thing I've been wondering about is uh, so there's this notion that the, this whole you know what hacking is not the you know, maybe not the, the mm -hmm. good term to um, encapsulate it all, but so mm -hmm. this other uh, hacking community is sharing codes, mm -hmm. sharing experiences, mm -hmm. when you have some project you can pick yeah. up, you know, yes. uh, from various, mm -hmm. various projects and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, you have forums mm -hmm. where you can discuss. Are there really strong disagreements? Are there, in, in a way, there seems to be many consensual, mm -hmm. you know, the operating mode is, seems to yeah. be uh, consensual, mm -hmm. the, of all your basic values yeah. are consensual. Mm -hmm. Where are the mm -hmm. conflicts? Right, so <clears throat> the thing, uh, what we call forking, is basically to have a bunch of people who disagree with how a project is run yeah. to take, because it's free, everything up to this point and take it to a different direction. Yeah. <clears throat> and because people don't have to get agreement from their peers mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. So this is actually the scientific model, right? When, when a scientist first proposed an alternate hypothesis, of course they face uh, humiliation even, or questioning, or intense speculation uh, from, or isolation from their peers. But if, if they are able to get maybe two or three other people to work on this new line of hypothesis, maybe after two years or three years they publish a paper and say, okay, we were wrong, it was a mistake. Um, and, but still, the scientific community welcomed them back, and it's considered important contribution, because at least they show that this line of thinking doesn't work, right? But uh, maybe one time out of a hundred, uh, their, their hypothesis was actually correct. Uh, and then um, the mainstream, although with some reluctance, will be able to incorporate their contribution back, and the main scientific narrative will change. Uh, it's exactly the same with the hacker or open source community. It's just much quicker. Because when you have a program, whether it works or not, you don't have to wait for the experimental physicists. You don't have to wait uh, for the survey number from the soci sociologists. You can just run it on your own computer to, to make sure that it, it's working better or is working worse. So this is, again, scientific evolution by working on much shorter time scale, a time scale that's counted in hours or, or weeks, um, weeks at most. Uh, to prove a, a new idea. So when a new idea like that takes hold, uh, sometimes the old maintainers refuse to merge, but more and more people would just converge on this new branch of code, and eventually the old um, branch will, will don't have the same brain power support anymore. And usually what, what these people do is that they, they give up their name and say, okay, this branch is now uh, like the GNU compiler GCC 3.0, uh, 
so the old GCC 2.0 folks are actually two very different kind of folks, but because of this idea of version number, people know that a higher version number is better. Right, so so then a, a new political faction will take power uh, from the old political faction, uh, with a lot of debates, but mostly just by proving it, with uh, attracting more people working on it. So there's conflict all the time, but it's soft not by voting, and not by even deliberating. It is soft by just demonstrating that you can attract more people. Yeah. yeah. You convince more people that they should participate in your project. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a swarm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so are you still very active in the um, mm -hmm. in the Gov Zero? Yes. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, how should I call it? A project or? It's a, a community. It's community. a community. Yeah. community. How many people are part of the community? Actively part of it. I mean, Gov Zero is one of the things because we our projects are consciously made so that people can donate very small amounts yeah. of their time. So the line between onlookers, participants, and contributors are very blurred, you know? If you count people who just type in one uh, cell of numbers as contributors, then, then yeah, it's easily tens of hundreds of thousands even, but, but we don't actually usually count it this way, right? So <clears throat> I would say um, it's... I would count by the number of projects, which is again in the hundreds. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of active people, and because Gov Zero is really just a space for for every um, hackathon, the community see maybe for a hundred people participating in hackathon, fifty people renew every time. So there's no way to to know that how much time that they they donate because when they learn that this model works, they bring it back to their original community, the design community, the law community, the journalism community. And so uh, just uh, the last few months, there's two uh, Gov Zero kind of open source creative commons media that is set up as nonprofit foundations or projects in Taiwan that gets a lot of attention. Um, one of it, uh, the reporter, Taiwan reporter, uh, is kind of like Rue uh, 89 in, in that it's, it's online only and it's focused on traditionally uh, more social left and, and so on. And, and, but it's relying... Coming from a, yeah. a reference uh, uh -huh. media outlet uh -huh. and then starting a... Yes, a yes. Uh, coming, coming from Tianxia Duli Pingluan, which suffered a scandal of censoring uh, one article about uh, Ma Ying-jeou, the president's meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, the commenter says it's unconstitutional. And of course, I mean, he's entitled to his opinion, but uh, the Tianxia uh, editor censored that. So, so it was published, there was a URL, and then after a few hours it was took down with no explanation. And so this is something a reputable media never do, right? And then, so obviously, uh, the column writer submitted to some other media, and then because there's not even an apology until like two days later, they explain that because they want to balance, they, they have to source another, like, you know, uh, view. Not, yeah. Do it. yeah, but I mean, online, it's not print media. On print yeah. media, you can say, okay, on the left column and right column, there has to be balancing. 
online, there's just no column, right? You're always just looking at one article at a time. So, so it's obviously nonsense. So this paper era thinking applied to online infuriated all their online writers. And I think a large majority of them just refused to write for Tianxia anymore and just quit the, the, the column. And so the ed editor-in-chief already quit uh, a, a few months ago, I think. And, and then with those writers and also writers from some other media, they just took a large donation and set up a non-profit non saying, <coughs> all our donors should have no say in our this new media. And they don't take advertisements. They rely entirely on donations. And so, so yeah, they were doing some very good uh, deep work uh, on investigative uh, journalism. So what's the connection with the GovZero? With GovZero, because it's open source. Okay. So <coughs> the entire website is open source, and all the photo and all the text is in Creative Commons. So GovZero helped design the website? Or? Yes. Um, so basically, um, their CTO uh, was... Uh, the organizer of Open Source Developer Conference in Taiwan, well, my very old friend, uh, H.C. Jian, and who's also active in GovZero. And so, um, and he quit his pretty high-paying work in Yahoo uh, to work on this new media foundation, which really is something. I mean, uh, he, he could have a, a very comfortable yeah. life in retirement and so on, but, but he, he felt that Taiwan really needs a, a non-profit mm -hmm. uh, media. Um, and so, um, the core of the Taiwan Reporter is uh, again HC and you know Gov Zero te technical folks. Uh, Kirby, one of Gov Zero co-founders, also uh, participated very heavily doing uh, interactive journalism. They wrote a game where you can play as a doctor in an emergency room that people keep flooding in, and you have to triage them and so on to expose the the overworking. Uh, situation uh, in, in, in Taiwan uh, of the, the medical industry, the medical profession. So it's very useful uh, for, for them to, as hackers, to, to like efficiently invoke emotions and experiences in, in this way. This is what we call data journalism and interactive journalism. And then the core of the young journalists in that organization were the e-forum uh, students, college students, uh, in the Sunflower Movement. So they were the, the only independent media uh, during the Sunflower Movement. And so they, they, they were, I think more than half of them, their core people went to this foundation. So it's like the Sunflower Movement, the two core kind of people, some of them uh, formed this new way of doing reporting and then um, a lot of people just contributed their time. So yeah, I, like I added a RSS uh, syndicate feed so you can subscribe to it on Feedly or Google Reader uh, the first day uh, when they went online and uh, also I set up a Twitter account for them all without asking permission yeah so I mean that's just how it works okay and um, so what about the um, I remember I was um, had a very deep impression of mm. the voters legislator mm. yeah guide. Yes. guide yeah yes. and um, so is it still going mm. on? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, how did you contribute to the, the, mm -hmm. the election? Yeah, there's a lot uh, <coughs> to talk about. Um, people, <coughs> this time uh, we, because the previous time it was like the civil society demonstrating, forking the government, <coughs> right? So this time 
the Central Election Committee actually just after the last election talked to the GovZero hackers and they want to open source their, their data. And so for the first time, <coughs> the digital <coughs> um, metadata, the, the candidates platform profile and everything, <coughs> they were usually available three days before the election in paper form only because all the candidates want to change it until the last moment for obvious reasons. And then, uh, but now, uh, for this time, uh, they were available, I think, a couple weeks or even before um, on the CEC as open data. And then for GovZero people to integrate into the voting guide website. And as the candidate changed their data, uh, it's because on the web, changing data doesn't cost anything. Yeah, yeah so we, we would just re-download uh, the, the data and uh, even compare the differences and so on. And so, so yeah, and, and that worked really smoothly. And I mean, even each voting booth count and everything, the real time uh, number of streaming and uh, like voting records, uh, everything was uh, published um, by the CEC. And the GovZero folks did, because we have a, uh, a party vote, right? So, so people would have vote for a legislator and then a party. Mm -hmm. And then the system was set up in a non-European way. <clears throat> if in a European way, people will count the percentage of parties and then assign legislators to them. But in Taiwan, no, the parliament is those uh, legislators who were elected and then uh, a third or, or so of the parliament seats were then distributed by parties. Okay. So it's like two different yeah. kind of legislators. Okay. <clears throat> and so people, and we had a 5% threshold. Uh, the parties who did not get 5% doesn't get any seat yeah. at all. Yeah. So people had a lot of confusion of exactly who will be elected uh, if you cast your votes on, on what party. And then another thing with the Taiwan constitution is that it, uh, it's in the constitution that women must have equal uh, representative in the legislative body. So for the party-based elections, is that equal representation? more than 50%. Wow. So in, in the, in the party-based no election, yeah. yeah. Uh, so in the region-based or district-based, there's no gender uh, okay. conversation. But for the parties, uh, basically, there's, uh, there's two parties, small parties, uh, who nominated three candidates each. But yeah. there were two men and one woman. So the second man will never get elected. Because the law was written such yeah. that each party must have more women or yeah. equal than, than men. So said the uh, CEO Gal, the GovZero, one of the GovZero co-founders said, maybe they're just success mathematics. So <laughs> that's one thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, so, so then we had this simulator where you can uh, simulate your voting. And then uh, it will just calculate, it's exactly showing the, the women who, who will get elected and then the men. And then, uh, and so people who are afraid their votes will go to waste or they want to use the latest poll numbers to see that whether they want to put this candidate or that on the street, can do very fine-grained calculations. Your vote yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, there's a lot of innovations around this, this election. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And um, so, how do you feel with the the new president? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, is it is it uh, good news for initiatives such as mm -hmm. uh, GovZero? Certainly, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> um, 
one of the, the best news is actually just came today. Uh, the Vice Prime Minister, Simon Zhang, the Google engineer, um, now become our Prime Minister. So... Um, that was the news today? Today, yes. So, um, for the next three months before Tsai Ing-wen gets uh, her administration team in place, uh, her party uh, agreed not to insult the current uh, cabinet. And Simon Zhang is generally seen as nonpartisan. He's not a, like, he did not campaign for nationalists. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, as a Google engineer, he serves a higher power <laughs> anyway than, than Taiwan when he worked in Google. So, so, so the good thing is that because uh, we, we settled all the open data related regulations last year uh, of a systematic review of all the uh, ministry's data and which data should be open, which should be kept private, the de-identification principles, everything was uh, done actually ahead of the EU uh, and the US, um, because Taiwan is smaller, mm -hmm. to, to reach consensus on such things. Um, the guarding uh, cabinet for the next three months could focus on transferring uh, in a transparent way. That is to say, not just to Tsai Ing-wen and her cabinet, but to the entire population, basically uh, showing how administration works. And uh, uh, so people, so we, we're not going from one overlord to another, yeah. but rather from a overlord to a more democratized uh, dissemination of information so that people can uh, get the same data as the, the cabinet people. Yeah. But the, the data must be made massive, right? Yes, yes. So how, and technically mm -hmm. speaking, how can yeah. it be shared? Sure. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's many ways. Um, there's a data portal, data.gov.tw, where uh, each ministry must now um, look at all its database, all the metadata, and then uh, talk with the civil society using a uh, committee that's one per ministry. And for example, there's a committee for the Ministry of Agriculture or the Ministry of uh, Science and, and so on. Uh, and then it must include at least, I think, one-third civil society people and then usually the academic people and then the policy-making people themselves. And this committee convenes every three months to lo look at all the data uh, that was generated in the previous three months, all the new data sets, and all the data requests from the civil society and the private sector to the government, and then decide uh, if some of them is state secret or if some of them contains private identifiable information. And is it under some sort of Taiwanese transparency law? Yes, this is a regulation that is we have passed. Transparency law in Taiwan. Well, it's it's well. There's a, quite a few laws. There's the Freedom of Information, Gong Kai Fa, which I think translates as the publication of uh, of information law. So, but it's the same as the FOIA, okay. um, right? And then. Uh, that's one thing that that only says the government must disclose information, but open data is something more. It's the raw data that's supporting those decisions yeah. and also allowing citizens to use this data to do more things, right? So for efforts like Off Zero, so uh, open the freedom of information is essentially read only, 
you're, you're uh, supposed to only read it. Yeah, you can use it. And open data, you can use it, yeah. you can write to it, you can even correct it. Yeah. And you can say, you know, this is a better way of doing things and the government should merge it back yeah. as we have been doing. So it's a, a more participatory kind of thing. So, yeah, and uh, there's also a, um, uh, a petition, e-petition uh, platform that's also online now. Uh, and people have already made like new builds uh, on it about uh, deregulation of um, cancer's uh, immunity cell therapy. Um, and it was um, proposed by someone who has to fly to Japan all the time to treat his cancer uh, because it was not, reg uh, it was not deregulated in, in Taiwan. And so he actually used Moedict the dictionary who, which draws this beautiful calligraphy that says to save someone's life is worth more than building seven towers of uh, Buddha worshipping. It's an idiom that says people's lives are important. So it, it very successfully campaigned on social media and collected 5,000 uh, counter signatures in a very short time. And it went viral. So. Um, yeah, and then the Ministry of Health and Welfare did it uh, in a deliberative, democratic way by meeting them and then keeping the full transcripts and publishing the full transcripts and then do an expert meeting and also publishing the full transcripts and then publish a, <coughs> what we call Lanrenbao, <coughs> a on-the-glance info infographics kind of slides. Lanrenbao meaning uh, a pack for lazy people. Okay. <coughs> so a message pack for lazy people to, at a glance, let people who have no um, health and welfare knowledge to understand what's going on and to chime in and then they finally agree to, to relax their regulations. So, so, so yeah, I mean, with efforts like these, um, the civil society, which always distrusts the, the government, now uh, sees a way of you know, slowly regaining this kind of trust on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and I think so it's... So how do you envision this? Mm -hmm. You feel it's what you're doing is empowering mm -hmm. civil society? Yes, certainly. Yes. Because, um, see, the, the problem with uh, the private sector dominating discourse is it, not inherently that we have a right-wing government. There's nothing in the Constitution or in the laws that says we're a right-wing government. We're not, right? <clears throat> but why it becomes this way was first because the civil society did not have a good self-organizing tool. And second, because there's no <clears throat> systematic, unbiased mediation space where people can reflect on each other. And internet is helpful in both of those two uh, ways. First, it gives the civil society a way to organize their own consensus. And second, it provides an unbiased, a neutral uh, space where for people could do it for deliberation. And all it takes is for the first sector, for the government, to empower the space, saying the results in this deliberation counts. Uh, and, and then it will uh, become, absorb it. it will absorb it, yes, and, and have a more interdependent relation between the three sectors. We're not saying, you know, the third sector should replace the second sector. We're not radicals like that. But we're saying that it should have a, a symmetry of attention, of deliberation among all the three sectors. And uh, so you're, you know, in our group, in our research group with Yves Saint-Omer mm -hmm. yeah. um, and Samuel, mm -hmm. yes. 
um, we're working on a representation. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that's very difficult to conceptualize for me, representation and the internet. Mm -hmm. How do you, uh, you know... need to give you maps? Very often, yeah, this, uh, you have people who are very active on the internet, mm -hmm. so they, they are the ones that you that are the mo most visible, mm -hmm. so they're not necessarily representative mm -hmm. of the overall mm -hmm. community of uh, web users. Mm -hmm. right? uh, but then, you know, when some of them, uh, so for instance, when someone criticizes, you know, on YouTube or, you know, one, one uh, video, they're very visible and they're going to have an impact on the next comments, but, you know, they, they might not be representative. And so this, uh, and representative, being representative also has different meanings and they're different criteria. And so I'm wondering if you're thinking yeah, about yes. this. I have an entire theory about it. Really? Yes. Uh, so and and, and mathematical model also. Really? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually, I've translated to, to English. So do you have access to internet? Um, or I can show it to you on my phone. Um, So this is actually right. So this is actually my my contribution uh, to the Taiwan Reporter, the the media, the nonprofit media. I, 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 uh, yes, yes. Yes. Did you send it to me? Yes, I did. Uh, well, I think I think Sarah, uh, one of the French Institute people. So so yeah, this is the the name. I can send it to you later. Um, so yeah, uh, actually, why don't I just send it to you now? Um, yeah, please do today. Yeah. So. Lee, I'm at Gmail, right? Okay. Um, yeah, yes. So, here, here we go. Okay. Thanks. Right. So, yeah, this is. Um, a kind of abridged and it's, version. So it's already been translated into English. Yes. Okay. Um, right. So so this this says <coughs> challenge for Taiwan civic hackers and crowdsource laws and participatory budgets. Mm -hmm. What's next? And the the more scholarly contribution was the the model of how the the private sector <coughs> um, kind of just dominated the policy making and how the civil society did not have a way to self-organize. They could just send individuals into the government, which then pulls them into the gravity center. And then um, how internet starts is changing that. But because this is not an empowered space, uh, people did not have trust <coughs> to the space itself. And so uh, for the past year, um, we've been experimenting with the professional mediators who came from the civil society or from the uh, private sector, <coughs> who could share early stage uh, policy making and divest the, um, the, the empowerment to those mediation spaces online. But then we're then working on a uh, more structural uh, mediated space that's outside the government, but still connects from this interagency, intranet kind of uh, policy making that could, um, you know, have the government agencies propose their own uh, views on the matter 
and then when this reaches some sort of consensus, then it's sent out for deliberation to the to, um, and this is bidirectional. So then the agenda setting power is then uh, decided collaboratively by the private and civic tech sector, and it could also be brought into the government's agenda and so on. So, so yeah. Uh, I love it. I, I'm yeah, so incapable yeah, of yeah, building yeah. visual models of. Right. That's that's really helpful. Yeah. So so I mean the. This, this, and this is actually computer science. This is called a uh, bigraph. Uh, it, it means circles and lines, mm -hmm. <laughs> connecting those circles. And in communication theory, um, you can distinguish between the empowered spaces and the non-empowered spaces and then visualize the actors and how they, they move around it. I mean, this, is, this was my mental model during the sunflower uh, occupation of where to add more lines, where to, to take out, who are the mobile actors, who are the influencers who could spread a message and so on. So, so yeah, there's simulators also for this. <laughs> right. right. So, so, but, but back to, to the, the idea of representation. So, I mean, the, the fundamental um, mistake, I think, when, when people think of YouTube or, or Facebook as democratic, was that they're they're not they're they're not really a a mediational space. They they are media. They they're not mediation. Mediation means uh, people can reach people with a different view of even opposing view and have meaningful uh, exchange. Whereas <coughs> both in Facebook and YouTube, you largely look at people you're subscribing to, and then if you don't like them, you just unfollow them and unsubscribe them or unfriend them. And then, so, so it's not mediating in any sense. Uh, it's just everybody's own newspaper. And then you can subscribe to each other's newspapers. Customize it. Customize it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just yeah. the media. Yeah. But, but it's not mediation. But without but performing its democratic role. So, so, I mean, it's democratizing access to information, yeah. which is also something. Yeah. But, then, but then it's so the, the broadcasting. Yeah. It's yeah. not the, the, so, uh, the... So the way we talk about this in our classes is that we said this is like a speakerphone, but what we need is a hearing aid that um, let we listen to millions of people. Yeah, so I, I think for representation to be meaningful, uh, you have to have a mediation space that uh, is at least symmetrical in the uh, its out outgoing and incoming uh, message. Whereas in most social media, its outgoing power is like a hundred times more than its listening uh, power. And uh, how do you feel about this? Because you're, you're contributing, mm -hmm. you're improving the mm -hmm. electoral mm -hmm. democratic process. Mm -hmm. Yes. But um, I, you, you're also trying to help deliberating uh, mm -hmm. uh, innovations yes. and, and Participatory uh, yes. innovations, and experiments, and so J on. Just this morning, we, I was talking to one of my colleagues about a VR-based deliberative space where people could just uh, like put on those helmets and on the same space for deliberation and have a 3D whiteboard. And then uh, most for the main speakers and other onlookers can also have a very cheap, like 10 euro cardboard where can, they can follow this 3D uh, conversation at home and so on. And, and so it will be like a town hall except the space is not limited. Wow. Yeah. But then how, I mean, if everyone's, mm -hmm. you can't have everyone speaking at the same time. 
Right, that, and that's exactly so why we here? have. But that's exactly why we have to have VR. Um, right. So um, first, everybody can write at the same time, okay. and uh, they can also speak in a kind of delayed way. Uh, there's several ways. One one is saying that they can speak in um, just following one of the main threads okay. uh, of discussion, uh, attaching like attaching notes to it, and it will take uh, stenography or some real-time way to convert uh, spoken word into written text. And then we do a, a, a affective analysis that groups uh, similar affects yeah. to, together. And we already, I mean, did that with the POLIS tool, the one that I show you about where you can vote yes or no, and then you get grouped, right? Yeah. But that, that was really uh, kind of primitive, because what we really want is a way to uh, in identify a partition of that dialogue and says, okay, now this is its own subtopic, and then move people to that space where people want to debate this subtopic, and so on, so it, it could branch out. So you branch out, and then mm -hmm. are you mm -hmm. designing a, a moment when yes. the, the people are going to yes. be branched Yeah, this is, this is just open space technology. Mm. I mean, people, people did OST in, like, um, hotels, right? They, they would go to a small room yeah. and they would brainstorm and they, they, and they, they go back with like yeah. seven points of strong consensus and yeah. four points of okay consensus mm -hmm. and then go to a larger room saying, okay, now based on this, how would you further your arguments and so on? So basically we're, we're taking the practice that we're very familiar with mm -hmm. and that we know it will work in real space but designing in virtual space so that only those best practices are possible. Are you in touch with the um, uh -huh. scholars, specialists of deliberation? Obviously uh -huh. not Fishkin because he's not a very open source. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah, the, I, I read the, the literature, and but um, I, I mostly um, partner with, uh, with Jia Hua on this because she's in touch with uh, all the deliberative, okay. like, Asia um, region folks, but then um, <clears throat> I think what I'm trying to do is to to keep a, a, a healthy distance from because a lot of deliberation technologies like the the nonviolent communication uh, ways or the um, like what twenty uh, first century town town hall meetings and the the, the wide views uh, methodologies and uh, um, open space and so on they were designed to to fit their accommodation. They're designed, from my point of view, uh, to fit in auditoriums, uh, hotel rooms, and uh, the typical dormitories. They, they were constrained yeah. by, by the universities which invented them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so what I'm trying to, to feel, get a feel out of it, is that if we just assume unrestricted space, then what kind of best practice can we put back here if we ignore physical laws? And so on. Yeah. Okay. It's very mm. interesting. Yeah. Wow. Each <laughs> <laughs> time I meet you, you're moving up to a different level, level. huh? Yeah, I, and I, I didn't talk about the, the second media that uh, the Civic Society did, yeah. also as a, um, a, a open source project. So this is called Talk to Taiwan. And um, now this is kind of uh, graphics heavy. But the, the idea is, so this is one of the GovZero projects, but we partner with yeah. huge yeah. amount of designers. So this is um, about parliamentary reform. The first one was about the healthcare. This one is about education. 
about the globalization of economy, of the social housing, um, of the food safety and environment, and so on. And so for, for each of those um, talks, it was, um, so this is Mayor Koenjo. Uh, who is a pretty good mayor, but a even better surgeon. Uh, so so okay. he was a professional surgeon. And uh, um, f like for He's the mayor of, of Taipei, Taipei City, Taipei. yes. Okay. Um, but he cares a lot about uh, the health um, care. Okay. So we set up a, a deliberative space, police, uh, online, like a week before uh, he, he aired this talk. Mm -hmm. And then people get into different groups and set an agenda of what they really want to hear on the field about the yeah from him yes okay. and then uh, and then people share their their stories and then they gather consensus you see the strengths of consensus and yeah. so on um, and then um, then the, it, it this was the agenda of the journalists who who then brought this agenda okay. to Dr. Ke and question based as, on as questions yes okay. and then um, and then we have a open data showing uh, in a transparent way how each input gets ranked okay. uh, in the agenda. And then uh, Mayor Ke then uh, responded. And then we both have the virtual reality uh, capture of the entire field when this interview takes place. So you can take on a helmet and see okay. it in 3D. But we, we also have the entire textual transcript. Okay. And then, based on the textual transcript, um, editors, in a civic um, voluntary way, edited a five-minute uh, like, um, summary of his points, like whether it's um, a welfare or whether it's a kind of insurance, like uh, how overworked it, it, uh, the issues is and how, how the major points are. And then the point of views were then transcribed back here uh, to, to the main points. And then uh, when people on the view viewing this, there were thousands of people um, reacting, reacting uh, in real time, typing, right, on the chat room. And those, uh, there's a lot of people want to talk about whether we include mainland Chinese students into the Taiwan's healthcare system. And then we set up a extra polis uh, for it to, okay. to segment that discussion. Mm -hmm. And then uh, people also reached a consensus, which was very difficult, actually. It was a highly polarizing yeah, subject. Yes, and then people what then... What was the consensus? The consensus was that because it's a um, welfare, it was designed as a welfare and not just an insurance, um, and students who don't plan on uh, permanent residence, they should have it, their own uh, insurance rates in a, a different system, and the mainland Chinese students should just be like foreign students. And it's currently, I mean, not a big problem, but foreign students are included in the Medicare, but not uh, mainland Chinese, and they should be seen as the same, okay. but not as a citizen's basic welfare, unless they plan to stay as a permanent resident, in which case we switch them into a welfare track, which is a very nuanced position, and, and people could agree on it. Yeah. Yes, so, so then, I mean, I mean, I mean, he's the Taipei mayor, so actually, when he sees the consensus, he cannot do anything about it. <laughs> but, but still, it's empowering in some yeah. way, because yeah. then he shows politically that he is willing to, to engage in this kind of deliberative yeah. meeting online, and, and so on. So, so yeah, this, this so was, was pretty successful. No, he was definitely not just lecturing you. No, he, he was, yeah. both the agenda was set, and then 
after this first one, we changed the format. It was just 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards, we have uh, one full hour of the 30 minutes being, you know, the agenda set by the police. Yeah. And then the third uh, 30 minutes being the real-time uh, curated comments from the chat room. Okay. And as a very quick, quick question, quick answer, yeah. quick conclusion. Yeah. From the, and so people can have two steps, like they get this whole picture from this lecture, yeah. uh, but then they can yeah, challenge them the and, 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 get a, and get it together details. So, yeah, and, and people were very much crowdsourcing all the references, like Lin Zhuoshui, who authored this uh, parliamentary reform white, white paper, widely considered the main theorist of Taiwan independence. Also, uh, so he, he talked about like the the cube law the uh, of the parliamentary seating, like uh, the optimum uh, parliamentary seats is a cube square root mm -hmm. of the entire population. So Taiwan has too few legislators, and, okay. and so and so on. And then people were really talking about you know the citations, the communication theories, and so on that enable this kind of uh, mathematical judgment. So it was very high quality. Deliberation. It's not just any lecture. Oh, wow. <coughs> so, I mean, it was pretty pretty nice uh, okay. to participate in this. Let's talk to Taiwan. Yeah. So yeah. So this is one of the early prototypes of bringing some virtual reality. Did it take a long time to design such a? No, it just took two weeks. Um, and. But it's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was. Um, can I say brood for a long time? But it's, no. No. no it, you had. You had never thought of. Uh, Right, because we, we, like this? people did this because um, that was, this was a reaction of the Nationalist Party replacing their candidate. You, you may know about this. They originally have Ms. Hong Xiu-Zhu from the parliament um, running for the president, but, but they, they just switched her yeah. off. And then uh, and it was kind of a shame because we were looking for a policy discussion. Um, Hong Xiu-Zhu, Ms. Hong Xiu-Zhu was um, against, um, like she, she has very interesting positions, against marriage equality, and uh, she's for death penalty, uh, she's for more nuclear power, um, she's um, like uh, all for reunification of China, but using the democratic system, annexing China, and then she's authentic in okay. a very interesting way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and all the, you know, martial law era conservative values could be found in her, and she also has a very coherent argument for it. So we were looking for a real debate, because if Tsai Ing-wen is to prove her progressive values, then it will shine through, uh, one way or another, through a direct debate with those conservative values, mm -hmm. which are still very much present also in the Taiwan society. Yeah. Yeah, so then it will become like a debate between generations and, and so on. But <laughs> the, the nationalists not, yeah. did not happen. The nationalists just decide to, to give up the presidential election and to save the legislative election instead, which did not succeed either. So, but then we were very afraid that then we will not get any policy debate out of this election because everybody knows how we will win. And so um, a bunch of people who worked on, they were uh, like new media people, the like cinnamon people, uh, professional designers and so on, 
we, we just contributed our, our thoughts uh, and, and say, say maybe, maybe there should be a debate, if not from the presidential candidates, then at least from the thought leaders of the each uh, part in Taiwan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's all volunteer. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Uh, you must be hungry, no? Uh, yeah, let's go to get yes. something to eat. <laughs>